Uh, We'll be reading together Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and give thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But rather, determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is the word of the Lord. This last week in our elders meeting, elders are the fathers of a church and the elders have the responsibility of seeing to the peace and unity of a church. And this last week in the elders' meeting, we talked about several matters that there are uh, various people in our church that have very firm convictions on. Um, I'll get back to that later. 
But as is typical of any family, there come times where you have to sort of uh, adjudicate and make peace between different people in a church. And it is true that today in the church in America, uh, there are certain issues that are not dealt with in Scripture. Um, There are issues that divide us, issues that we fight over, issues we have very strong convictions about. And sometimes those convictions become a way of binding each other's conscience. And if we look at this text, we can see that there are a couple of things that are uh, coming to the fore in the church in Rome that are causing there to be division in that church. Now, the obvious one, because it's woven all through the text, is the issue of eating. What was dividing them over eating? Well, back then in Rome, there was uh, a large, uh, there was a large, large division among Christians as to whether or not it was proper to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. At the time, uh, this would have been one of the principal ways that you would get a hold of meat. You know, there was a lot of sacrificing going on, and so there was a lot of meat available that had been used in the worship of demons. Because we know in Scripture that the worship of anybody but the true God is, in fact, the worship of demons. So you can imagine how in a church there are those who say, well, the demons aren't anything. Uh, All the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. And so, you know, those people who are so uh, blinded by Satan, such slaves to the darkness that surrounds us, that they worship demons. uh, What is this to us? We know the true God and we have freedom. And so they'd eat the meat. They would have no scruples about going into the, uh, the butcher shop of the temple and buying this meat. If they went to friends who were still idolaters for a meal, they'd have no problem eating the meat that was offered to them. There were other Christians, though, maybe those who had just recently come out of paganism, maybe particularly the Gentiles who had become Christians, who realized that wrapped up with Uh, these pagan temples were all kinds of godless practices. And maybe they had made huge sacrifices in order to come out of this idolatry and to confess faith in Jesus Christ. And so it was very difficult for them uh, to make that step. In many cases, they had to turn their backs on their own families and loved ones and their childhood friends. And so for them to have made that change... And then to see other Christians who maybe had been raised Jews and really didn't have a problem with it, uh, it was scandalous to think of any Christian having anything to do with this, this pagan demonic worship. And so they would say, you should never touch that meat. They'd have vegetables, you know. They'd do anything they could. Maybe if they were in another place where you could be sure that the meat was kosher, uh, you know, I'm not using that word right, but you know what I'm saying, then they'd go ahead and eat the meat. So there's a division. And here's what the Apostle Paul does. He says, you know what? I'm a dad. And I'm going to bring peace to this church because this church is going to be united. That's what dads are supposed to do. That's why we have elders. It's one of many reasons we have elders. And so he looks at the problem and what does he say? Well, what he really doesn't say is don't eat meat, right? And what he really doesn't say is go ahead and eat meat, right? He really kind of walks a fine line between both positions. And when you get done reading it, probably if you had to make a decision about which side he fell on, it's likely that he fell on the side of not eating meat, right? Some of you say yes, some say no. So let's have a fight. (laughs) All right. 
So we look at the text, and therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies... Excuse me, going back. (laughs) My thing flipped. Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now think about this. You're told to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So you say, yeah, that's right. I will love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you accept them, right? You can't love them if you don't accept them. The minute you have agreed to accept them, what does Daddy do? Daddy says to us, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We are real predictable. He can tell us to accept each other. We say, okay, I accept each other, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. The second we say we accept each other, all of a sudden we're passing judgment. I've accepted you, but you're a sinner. You're stupid. You know, you're in bondage. You know, you eat me. You don't eat me. Accept each other. And immediately, not for the purpose of passing judgment. Isn't that interesting? This is how easy it is for us to condemn each other. This is who you are. Absolutely who you are. Given half a chance, you will judge everybody sitting next to you, particularly your husband. And so Paul says, accept one another, and then immediately, not for the purpose of passing judgment. Ah, He got us, didn't he? Right there. That's the kind of authority we need in order to love one another, in order to accept each other. Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. You say, Paul, what are you saying that for? Why are you calling him weak? Don't you know that that's only going to exacerbate the problems? You don't call him weak if you're telling us to accept each other. Accept each other. The one who's strong, who eats meat, and the one who's strong, who doesn't eat meat. Well, he actually does label which one is strong and weak, doesn't he? But he says that we are to accept one another in the strength and in the weakness. Then he says the one who eats, verse 3, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Now, think about this. Um, The one who eats is making what decision? The one who eats is making a decision that the idols and the temples to the idols are what? That they're really nothing, right? Now, why does he say that they're nothing? And he can go ahead and eat the meat. Well, he says they're nothing. Why? Because he has faith in Jesus Christ and the only true God, right? And so his knowledge causes him to be what? And in a university community, note this carefully. His knowledge causes him to be what? To be puffed up. Um, it's, some of you are, have nothing to do with the university, but many of you do. And I'm going to make the point that I make over and over again. The far and away, the largest amount of wealth there is in the Western world is the university. It dwarfs the wealth of Warren Buffett and of Bill Gates. Because wealth is not simply measured in dollars. Wealth is also measured in status. And the status of a Ph.D. is far beyond the status of Bill Gates. Knowledge puffs up. The minute we have a little extra knowledge about Scripture and about its meaning, we begin to judge the brother sitting next to us, and we feel superior to him. Did God give us the Word? Did He give us the truths in the Word so that we would feel contempt for the man or woman that sits next to us? 
That's absolutely appallingly bad. Everything that God gives us is for the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. And so what you see here is that the one who says we can eat meat right away is cautioned what? Not to regard, verse 3, with contempt the one who does not eat. And you can see how he'd do that. You know, I have knowledge. I realize that these, you know, these idols are nothing. You know, the worship is nothing. I can go ahead and eat. I know that I, I have strong faith. I have knowledge. I, I understand what's going on here. And so what? That person regards with contempt the person who has a tender conscience about it. And so Paul says what? That we're not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And then right away, being a good daddy, he's fair. And he goes and he warns and rebukes the one who does not eat. Second half of verse 3. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Absolute fairness. The one who has knowledge is not to regard with contempt. The one who maybe lacks knowledge and is weaker is not to judge. Why? Because it says, verse 3, God has accepted him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together that I recommend to you again and again and again and again. It's only 100 pages. It's real cheap. You can buy it and read it. He talks about how we all tend to fight with each other. And he says that, uh, he says that the one who is strong uses his strength to oppress the one who is weak. Now, all of us would agree with that, right? A man who stands two, uh, six feet two and weighs 250 pounds and uh, has a loud mouth and an intense personality and is 53 years old, right, is oppressive. You know, you're very happy that when I preach, I'm, I'm preaching to a group, so I can't be right next to you talking to you, right? Um, what you often forget, though, is that the one who is weak uses their weakness to oppress the one who is strong. To, you know something? Hold on a second. All right. I had it on silent, but that was Bluetooth. <laughs> Somebody just sent me a text message. <laughs> I never used to bring my cell phone to church, um, but now I never have it ring, so I thought I was safe, but I'm not. Sorry. Um, what we have to realize is that weakness uses its weakness to oppress the strong. And this is something in America today that's very, very hard for us to get our hands on. Because all of America hates strength. What it wants is people to be victims. And the minute they're victims, it gives them the keys to the kingdom. Okay? Bonhoeffer says the one who is weak uses his weakness to oppress the one who is strong. And man, let me tell you. <laughs> I see my brother Mark sitting there. He's a pastor. He's nodding. 
I have seen this in more elders' meetings than I ever care to tell you. The perception is that the man who's straightforward is the oppressor and the one who's passive-aggressive is always the victim. Absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Those of you who are weak often use your weakness to fight unfairly with those who are strong. And the Apostle Paul is wise. He condemns, cautions, and warns both sides. Uh, And this happens all the time. Let me give you an example. We hear daily from Nashville where our oldest, Heather, and her husband, Archie, Doug, and their three, almost four children live, and now where Hannah is. And what we hear about are the latest doings of the children. And yesterday we heard of a little episode. Josiah is their youngest until this baby is born in the next day or two. And Josiah is adopted, right? And Josiah is a terror. You know, when I watch Doug dealing with him when they're visiting us, I sometimes just start giggling. Because it's so, so difficult. And I'm just so happy that Doug's the one that has to deal with Josiah. (laughs) You know, because I'm 53 and I'm getting tired. (laughs) I get tired just watching Doug. So we heard yesterday about this episode where Josiah was standing on the board of the board game that the kids were playing, right? You know, he's like walking in the middle and like standing on, you know, little kids do this, you know, they like to kick over the pieces and, you know, mess up all the Monopoly money and throw the dice around. Because why? Well, because they're young, they're not allowed to play and they resent it, you know. And so Josiah was trying to upset the apple cart of his brothers. So finally, Josiah gets his comeuppance. He gets a spanking, right? Not a symbolic one, a painful one. And uh, as soon as the spanking is over, what does he do? Well, he walks over by the game, and he takes his little foot. How old is he, love? 22 months, right? Not even two. He takes his little foot, and he puts that foot as close as he possibly can, right next to that board, right? Then did he not put his foot actually on it? He took it and crossed it and then brought it back. Huh? He touched it. He touched it. Oh. He touched it. (laughs) And so, of course, because he has good parents, what did they do? What was he doing? Josiah was directly, directly, insubordinately going against his mother. Directly. And so what did they do? Well, they came and they picked him up and they they walloped him. This time he didn't mess up the pieces. He touched it. And so he got a spanking. Now, let's say that Heather and Doug and Hannah, as she helps, were were not wise. And they looked at little Josiah and they saw that his skin was dark. And they thought, you know, this little boy is going to grow up to have dark skin. And, you know, really it's going to be hard for him. And let's say they started to treat him with preciousness. 
And they thought, you know, it's hard for him. He's adopted and the rest of our children are, are our natural flesh and blood. His whole life he's going to have to cope with this. And they began to treat him preciously. Let's say that they thought, you know, Josiah's the youngest and he doesn't get to do a lot of the things that his, his older brothers get to do. And isn't that sad? And they began to treat him preciously. How long would it take Josiah to realize that he had a position of uh, power from which he could operate? (laughs) I don't think it would even take five minutes. (laughs) I think Josiah would know this was a strategic weakness in that home and he would exploit it to the max. And I'd love him for it. You know, you've got to admire it, right? Every church has weak people who use their weakness to oppress those who are strong. And good daddies will not let it happen. They'll be just as hard on the weak people who are passive-aggressive as they will be on the strong people. In fact, sometimes good daddies will look at the strong person and say, God bless you for saying up front what you feel. I'm so tired of people who will never say it directly, but always say it through three or four other people, and then it works its way back to me, you know? (laughs) All right. And when you go on and you look, you'll see that there are other issues that were coming up. What are the other issues? Well, look at verse 5. It says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. What's going on there? Well, we still have that issue today. We have the issue of whether or not, for instance, the Lord's Day should be celebrated in a way that's different than the rest of the week. Some of us are convinced that the Lord's Day should be set apart as the Lord's Day. We believe in the continuation of something analogous to the Old Testament practice of the Sabbath. Some of us think that that's completely done away with, that in the New Covenant we don't do that anymore. Interestingly, John Calvin is on the anti-Sabbatarian side. He doesn't believe in the continuation of the Sabbath. The Puritans are on the Sabbatarian side. Our church accepts the Westminster Standards. That means that the Westminster Standards were written by Sabbatarians, and therefore the Sabbath continues. If you go into my denomination, the PCA, you'll find that almost every man that comes before Presbytery, when he's asked, what exceptions do you take to the Westminster Standards, will take an exception on the Sabbath. That's the one exception you can predict is always taken. Now, it's not always taken because they're not Sabbatarians. It's not always taken because they hold to the Calvin position. It's often taken because they don't like the way the Westminster Standards actually address the Sabbath. But they will almost always take an exception on the Sabbath. In this church, we have some who don't believe in any Sabbath practice today. We have some who do believe in the continuation. All right. What does he say? He says this. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That means that today we are not to judge those with whom we disagree over whether or not the Sabbath continues. The one who thinks it doesn't continue is not to judge the one who thinks it does. The one who thinks it does is not to judge the one who thinks it doesn't. Now, doesn't that sound good? That's such a relief, right? Because that means that we can take Sunday and have it be a family day and celebrate it every week as a family day. 
free of all constraints and all responsibilities. But you know what? If you take Sunday as a family day, guess what? You have just decided that one day is different than all the other days. You have a Sabbath day. You just aren't giving it to the Lord. You're giving it to yourself and your wife and your children. I mean, you get what I'm saying? Boy, we have principles for doing what we want to do, don't we? One person has no days any special than the other, and then that person doesn't go to church on Sunday because they have Sunday as the day that they have family time. And all of a sudden we realize we're snookering ourselves. It's more complicated than you want to think it is. If one day really isn't any different than the other, then that means you're free to worship with the people of God when they gather, to have yourself in a small group. And this is what Calvin said. Calvin was not in favor of the continuation of the Sabbath, but he did say that it is appropriate that each week we do devote ourselves to the corporate worship and to the gathering of the saints. And so even if you believe the Sabbath doesn't continue... Doesn't it make sense that one day in seven, you actually will make sure other things don't encroach upon your corporate worship of God, your fellowship with the saints, your deeds of mercy? But instead, what evangelicals have done is thrown out the Sabbath and brought in a mall, restaurant, and family day. That's not what Calvin said. So be careful on this day issue. Fine, you're not a Sabbatarian. That's fine. That's fine with me. But then don't have one day that... You know, sports and restaurants and mall and shopping and family things are what you do because that's just worshiping at the altar to the American gods. You know, come on, have some, have some, you know, don't be so predictable. (laughs) You know, think it through carefully. Whatever you do, be convinced fully. Have your conscience clear before the Lord, not before me. But hear my exhortation. Okay, so we're dealing with the issue of food and we're dealing with the issue of one person regards one day above another. Very interesting statement in the middle of this where he says this. He says, um, verse 15, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. There's a little bit of irony there. Isn't it interesting? You know, it's like, how can food destroy somebody? Food builds us up. Food is what we live off of. Food is the way that we share love with each other as we gather around a table. So there's a particular irony about using food to harm somebody, isn't there? Food should not be used to hurt each other, should it? Now, how does this apply to us today? You ready? Um, The way this applies to us that we discussed in the elders meeting this last week is breastfeeding. Are you laughing? It's funny. You would not believe how many discussions of nursing that we've had in our elders meetings. We have actually taken positions on some of these issues. Now, if you're single and you don't know about this, the Lord bless you. But there are times that you have to deal with family issues. Here's the deal. Some people believe that you should never nurse on schedule but on demand. Some people believe that you should never nurse on demand but rather by schedule. Those people who believe in 
nursing on demand believes that those people who believe in nursing on schedule are possibly harming their children physically. All right? And those people who believe that you should nurse on schedule believe that you could possibly harming your child by nursing on demand. Now, you understand the first one. You know, if a baby's hungry and it's crying and you say, no, it's not time yet, how that somebody could think that hurts the baby. But the other way, how does that hurt the baby? Well, because you're allowing the baby to set the schedule of your home. You know, you're not having quality time with your husband or wife because you're at the whim of the baby, right? And so both sides hold to their position firmly, right? Now, I know this is going on because in the elders' meeting, when I brought it up, everybody was relieved that it was being brought up. And this is a place of freedom. We don't have a position, and neither does Scripture, on whether you should nurse on demand or on schedule. Okay? Don't put a guilt trip on other people in the church. If you have a baby, feel free to nurse when you want. Okay? The elders have asked me to say this to you. Okay? Another thing. Some people have their babies at home, some in the hospital, some use painkillers, and some don't. Guess what? You have freedom. The elders don't want you fighting over this. If you want to take painkillers, that's perfectly all right. You know why? Because I use gloves to pull weeds. Now, I actually don't, but if I were with thorns, I would. What's the connection? Well, it says what? In Genesis, that part of the curse is that men will work with thorns. And there are an infinite number of ways that men compensate for the curse in their work. Does this make sense to you? And so if you as a woman dealing with the curse of pain and childbearing want to compensate, that's not a failure of spirituality and faith on your part. Right on. Right on. (laughs) It's freedom. It's freedom. Now, how would you judge somebody who used a painkiller if you thought it was unspiritual to use one? Here's how you'd do it. Somebody would say to you that they they had decided they were going to have a spinal, right? And and when they said that to you, how would you you handle it? You'd you'd look at them and you'd go. All it takes is a slight lifting of the eyebrow. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay? Every one of these women who give themselves to children have already given a service that is beyond reason. This is why we don't have women defend our nation. They already go through war in giving birth to us. And they shouldn't have to do it twice. And if they decide that they're going to put gloves on while they pull the thistles, God bless them. All right. So no lifting of eyebrows, no supercilious smug lifting of the nose. You know, not even a hint of judgment and condemnation. Now, how far do I go with this? Jeremy Taylor is a hero of mine wrote an essay called On the Duty of Breastfeeding Your Children. 
And in that essay, he argued that it was wrong to not breastfeed your children. Why did he argue that? Well, he argued that because back a couple of centuries ago, it was a habit of rich people to hire women to take their children from them so they didn't have to be bothered with the children God had given them. So the child would go out of the home, the child would go to somebody else's home. The level of infant mortality in wet nursing homes was humongous. There would be women whose whole life was given over, typically poor women, to nursing other people's children. And those children would die in droves. But Jeremy Taylor was not saying this simply because the infant mortality rate in those homes was so large. He was also saying it because it was an effort to escape the inconvenience of having a baby. And the truth is, God gives children to us so that they can be raised in a covenant home. And it is one of the principal blessings of married life to have children, to take joy in them. You saw Mary Lee and me holding uh, Julia during while Jim was, was playing up here in the band. The minute he gets done, the whole time I'm holding her, guess what I don't do? I don't let her look up front. Because I know if she sees her daddy, she's going to start crying, right? The minute she sees him walking back, you know, this is the blessing of God to Jim. It's the blessing of God to Julia. God does not intend us to have children and then farm them out to other people. So now what would be the application of that today? Well, you know where I'm headed. Christians today who are able should care for their own children. Now, there are cases where a woman gets abandoned by the father of her child and she has to work. Christians should do everything they can to make sure that woman doesn't have to work. What does that mean for us? It means that we're not doing right. We have women in this church who have to work because their husbands abandoned them. Well, the rest of us have our own income and we take care of our own children. If they have to work, that's their problem, right? Do you think that's how they would have handled it in the early church? Now, what am I doing? I'm meddling. I'm saying the application of Jonathan, or Jeremy Taylor's essay back a couple of centuries ago today is that we should not cast our children off from us, put them in daycare, put them someplace else, and let people that haven't been given them by God. You know, G.K. Chesterton refers to parents as a child's natural sovereign. <laughs> you know, if God chooses to place a child under your care, your instruction, your love, be jealous of that. Don't just give it away to someone. You go, yes, and that's why Christians should all homeschool their children. I go, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> uh-uh. You can make a conscious decision that you're going to delegate to someone else who's a believer the education of your children. You say, yeah, that's right. And people that have their children in public school are sinners. And I go, nah, 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 nah. You can make a decision that certain aspects of education are going to be done by pagans. After all, many of you have used music teachers that are pagans. Why can't math be taught by a pagan? I can't stand these Christian textbooks that act as if math is a time to witness to... You know, I mean, it's like, come on, it's math. <laughs> you know, how about all his soccer coaches have to be Christians? Hey, listen, if you could ever make a case for a Christian person training your child, it's soccer coaches. Let me tell you. I've just lived through, well, never mind. <laughs> this is another area of freedom. We do not hold to 
parents not using public school. We don't hold to parents homeschooling. We don't hold to parents Christian schooling. This is a decision you need to make. Now, other people can argue with you, but they may not condemn you. Do you understand that? So this is, this is, this is, this is what the elders want us all to hear. We don't want those of you who are weak to judge the strong. We don't want you who are strong to have contempt for the weak. We want all of us to continue to love each other. Now, if you think, because you're new here, that this is an indication that this is a church that fights and doesn't have love with each other, you're absolutely wrong. There is a complete sweet spirit in this home. This is a family that we get along with each other. There are areas that are tense. But it's because we have godly elders who actually discuss these things in elders' meetings and decide that we are going to have freedom in this issue, but in this issue we're not going to have freedom. This is why we get along. There was a lot of division over whether or not to cancel Sunday evening worship. The elders decided that in that case the good was the enemy of the best. And the elders decided that what we needed as a church was to have the fellowship and intimacy of small groups at the expense of a corporate Sunday evening worship service. I talked to friends of mine who are Reformed pastors. They have a hissy fit over that. They can't conceive of the fact that we had a wonderful Sunday evening service where well more than half of our congregation attended and hung around for over three hours and we killed it. It boggles their mind because they can't get a tenth of their people to come to Sunday evening worship. Our elders looked at our needs, made a decision. It was painful. One of the pains is I can't give a talk like this Sunday evening anymore. It has to go in Sunday morning. Our elders are faithful in looking at our needs as a family and being daddies to us. And so I want you to love the elders and show your love by loving each other and not judging each other in these issues. And I'm speaking for the elders in saying that to you, okay? The elders all with me? Nope. Nope. Amen. Amen. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And then what does it say? And not just please ourselves. So are we going to love each other? Huh? This morning was a very tense morning. Getting rid of the tension for me was accomplished by looking at the fact of how delighted I am to be at this church. And uh, I do love this fellowship. And you know, there are certain advantages to being at wealthy churches. We live hand to mouth at this church, let me tell you. For the second time this week, I'm carrying, lugging uh, an overhead projector from my home and a screen. <laughs> because as a church, we can't afford to have an overhead projector. You say, oh, but there's one back there. Yeah, you can't touch that baby. And so there are constant struggles because of the lack of money at this church. But you know what we have? We have unity. We have a godly board of elders that gets along beautifully. There are no trust issues in our board of elders. And uh, 
you know, you have to choose between being a church that, you know, has a $20 million building campaign and wealth flowing out and a church that has a board of elders that's united and the people love each other and, you know, we're in each other's homes. You know, that's no choice for me. I just love it. So I do love you. I love being a pastor of this church. I love being on the board of elders. I love preaching to you, having the freedom I have in my preaching. Um, I don't get punished by our elders for saying things that are bold. Um, So love each other, and that will make our joy complete. Don't consider yourself better than the others. Let's pray.